Welcome to the debate at Newsweek. I'm Andrew Tallman, along with Batya Ungar Sargon. And today we're joined by a couple of return uh, violators. Mark Davis, talk show host on 660 AM, The Answer in Dallas, Fort Worth, and a columnist for Town Hall. You can follow him on Twitter at Mark Davis. And Ellis Hennigan, New York Times bestselling author and Pulitzer Prize winning columnist and never pretentious. Uh, Ellis Hennigan, you can follow him on Twitter at Hennigan. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank Good you. to see you guys. Good to be here. Good to have you. So we're going to start with the word of the year. Well, one of them, Oxford's got a uh, kind of a competition going where people can vote for a bunch of words that nobody's really heard of. Uh, meanwhile, Merriam-Webster has given us gaslighting as the 2022 word of the year where searches for the meaning of the word went up uh, 1,700% last year, not because of anything in particular, but just sort of uh, apparently this, uh, you know, the zeitgeist decided that, oh, I want to know what this term means. And for those who don't know, I don't mean to play the pedantic teacher, but gaslighting is to psychologically manipulate somebody else into believing that they're fairly plausible evidence-based or rational perspective on something is crazy and to try to make them doubt themselves when they're asking reasonable questions. So, Ellis, let's start with you. Why do you think gaslighting is the word of the year? Should it be? Or do they miss some other word? I think it's terrific. And it reflects something real, I think. I mean, certainly our politics have gotten unhinged from reality in a way over the past few years that has not been true in my lifetime. And so, so if you're prepared to believe that uh, Democrats are molesting children in a pizza parlor in, in Washington, D.C., and that all the election results really aren't what they appear to be, you're a wonderful candidate for gaslighting. I say welcome aboard. I love the buggy eyes you made while making that particular <laughs> description that I know. No, listen, you can't catch it, but it really was quite poignant. Uh, uh, Mark, what do you think? Is is gaslighting the right word? It's perfect. And Ellis just proved half of the reason why. Uh, actually, he proved the entire reason why with an example of how he would see it. Uh, to me, gaslighting would be a president telling you against your own lion eyes that inflation is just a, a temporary thing and our borders are secure. <laughs> You're the crazy one if you don't believe it. Uh, I think it's one of those things where all everybody on every side can get together and admit that there is a perception that it we're we're well beyond and this is probably not a great thing we're beyond the notion of of a lot of debate with goodwill and uh, uh where give people benefit of the doubt we all crank it up to 11 or 12 immediately and we presume that the people on the other side are not just mistaken but they're crazy they're sinister they're telling us things that are so patently untrue that they're crazy to be even saying them so yeah i'll join ellis in saying a big thumbs up for gaslighting as a word of the year Weird moment of unity uh, early in the game here. Sorry, uh, I don't mean to put the yellow card down on this, but we've got we both. See, we we all seem to agree that's a great term. The problem is we all accuse the other guys of doing yeah, it. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yes. So, I mean, I, my, I guess there's a serious question here, which is, do you acknowledge when your own people do it? Because surely all players engage in this to some degree. At least there are players on each side that engage in this to some degree. Do you call it out when your own guys do it, Ellis? Yes, if only as a rhetorical technique, because we all understand that if we concede 5%, it makes us in a position to argue the other 95 a whole lot better. That's just a, that's just a smart human relations rule. I don't think that has anything to do with politics. 
and, and the and honest people do, uh, honest partisans do, uh, as a, I mean, as a general purpose Trump defender on the big stuff during that presidency, there were the moments where I'd had to say, look, the, the, the point he made about the inauguration crowd or some other sideshow thing was just patently false. There were people who wanted me to take that and realize that he's totally unfit to leave the country, which I did not do. But uh, the honest partisan uh, will will recognize even when people on their own side are are, are trolling people. You see, see, Mark. Though here here's the problem. I mean, so many people today live inside their own little bubbles, right? I mean, and I, I certainly see a much a much tighter bubble on the right than I than I do on the left. But 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 you might disagree with that point. But but certainly, it is possible today for the first time in human history to never ever ever hear anything you disagree with. That makes us all stupider. It allows the gaslighters to go ahead. And it really does uh, does you know close off any any need to ever concede anything because no one I ever see wants me to. We we've lost an appetite for and, and because of the phenomenon I was describing a couple of minutes ago and, and and that's why it's such a joy to hang out with Ellis and hang out with other people you know some of my best friends are people I agree with about nothing and and, and yet we are able to engage with goodwill and tolerance and love and you know using our friendship as the as the as the foundation. And I don't want to say that's gone, but it but it's waning. And and so much of our discourse. I mean, you go back to the era of Reagan and Tip O'Neill, right? Could could you see that between a you know a Biden and a Kevin McCarthy? Could you see that between you know an Obama and you know and a Newt Gingrich? Probably not. Uh, but not even in the highest echelons of, of the public discourse, but just in our lives. What did we just go through? The little lecture about how to handle the uncle at Thanksgiving, or how to navigate uh, uh, political differences at Thanksgiving. How about not having political differences? At Thanksgiving. And how and finally to finish, when we do have political differences, how about a little more listening, a little less talking, a little more goodwill, and maybe that would make a, a better world. All right. So I'm going to ask the question to which I do not know the answer, but I would love to have one. If gaslighting is the bad thing, gaslighting is the making of someone who disagrees with you feel like they are insane or crazy, marginalizing their opinion so much that no rational person would take it seriously. What's the opposite? Because it seems like what we're trying to do at the debate. Uh, I know what I do on my radio show uh, is when I'm talking about something that somebody I disagree with believes, I feel like it's my obligation to explain why they hold that view before I criticize it to the audience. I want them to learn. You know, we're always as you know, you guys come on this uh, podcast frequently because we're trying to learn each other's points of view, not just to have our shots. But that seems to be the goal, right? That's the goal is to. How can we understand each other? So is there a term for that? And am I hopelessly naive thinking that we can move more in that direction, Alice? Hmm. Uh, you know, speaking the, the, the awkward truth, uh, something, something like that. I, to, to me, the problem, though, really comes in is that there is less and less actual social need to do that. And I think it's what, what, what Mark may be complaining about there is that if all you do is hang out with people you agree with, no one ever calls you on anything. And so I don't know. To me, to me, that at the moment is the thing I, I'm, I'm railing against. I want to be the bubble buster. And uh, hey, maybe I'll have a chance to do it in the next few minutes. I don't know. It's it's a space that's the bubble busters anonymous. Absolutely, getting outside your own world, getting your head out from inside, deep inside your own butt. If you'll pardon me metaphorically, and and getting out and experiencing the work, 
uh, the views, the opinions, the passions of people who agree, who disagree with you about everything. If you're looking for a word, I, I mean, I'll call it decency, call it civility, call it goodwill. I think that's when I, you know, I, it's just when you, when you're listening to someone and you know, you really viscerally disagree with what they're saying, but you allow yourself to think there's a reason they believe this. Maybe it's that we see the world differently. Maybe we've walked a different life path. Maybe there's something that they need to be informed about. Maybe there's something I need to be informed about. And if we go at it in that kind of uh, microcosmic way, rather than just instantly bringing the sledgehammer down, it, it, that, that maybe that'll be better too. But that, take, that takes work. It takes a kind of, and it, I don't know if Ellis was, was touching on this when he made that reference a moment ago, but it, it's, all, it's all this, it's all phones. It's all social media. The degree to which we are actually interacting in a room with people over coffee, over a beer, over a meal. Now it's all, you know, what's that latest tweet? What's that latest TikTok video? And it ramps everything up to infinity and it poisons the culture. So a lot of agreement happening here, which is very bad for our brand because this is literally called <laughs> oh, the debate. Um, I got I got to throw in a few uh, a, uh, a few stinkers here. Well, first of all, um, right now, even as we're recording this, um, the House just bipartisanly voted to sell out railroad workers together, both sides of the House. Right, so there's certainly plenty of, uh, of 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 bipartisanship when it comes to selling out the working class. And on the plus side, Bernie Sanders and Marco Rubio are going to join hands and try to get some paid sick leave through. So again, some bipartisan support there on the other side. Um, I was going to ask you guys, what was the biggest gaslight of the year for each of you? But you kind of um, said in your opening remarks, tell me if this was correct. So I think for you, Ellis, it was stop the steal. And for you, Mark, it was the president talking about how inflation is transitory. Is that correct? Are those your answers? Yeah, yeah that sounds good. Okay. Right, cool. if, if you're talking about the the biggest, the biggest, okay, yeah. Okay. Yeah. This, this, this takes 20 seconds. So here we go. I'll, I'll phrase it in the following way, because something like inflation is either good or bad. I mean, I, I, I you know, but here's the thing. Here's the one that 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 gets to me. Uh, the notion that the slightest amount of doubt over the 2020 result, the refusal to bow to it as pristine as the driven snow, makes you an instant election denier and insurrectionist. That conflation of uh, election purity skepticism with January 6th rioting uh, has been uh, a, a slander of now years of the making. So there's Alice, that one. You want to respond I, to that? You know, excuse me for not feeling too sorry for you guys on this one. I mean, you know, you were <laughs> surrounded by others who took this thing, uh, you know, 50 miles down the road from what you were just talking about. I mean, we had the president of the United States embracing the most extreme versions of that. We had people storming the Congress. Now, now they, I will concede there might have been one very reasoned, minor desire to check some technical matter. But Lord, in the face of what happened, it's it's kind of hard to pay attention to that little stuff over on the side, isn't it? Well, there, well there's a, but there's a pattern here, right? I mean, of course, Mark's using that one example, but the pattern is if you raise a question on some topic you get labeled a denier or a phobe or whatever. There's not the room we've been talking about to raise questions and have some dissent across the spectrum on these topics. You get gaslighted or, you know, exaggerated into a position that you don't you know, straw man into a position you don't really hold just because you raise questions. And, you know, sometimes you just raise a question because you want to hear an answer. 
Well, Ellis, can I ask you, do you feel that the right does that to the left as well? Are there examples you could call up where, you know, you feel that um, a reasonable objection to something is painted by the right in extremist terms? Um, sure. Guns. Let's, let, let's talk about this so-called wokeness, right? Uh, I mean, lots and lots of Americans. In fact, it really has become a, a, the dominant view in America. People support the idea of of embracing multiculturalism, being open-minded about people's uh, love and marital choices, about uh, being concerned about the environment, things that get parodied as wokeness today. And more and more of society is embracing that. Corporations are responding to their employees and their customers by by advancing those values. Universities are responding to their own markets uh, by embracing those kind of views. I, I think it's it's terrible when that gets parodied as some kind of intolerant wokeness, when really what it is is a consensus in our country that has grown over time. Then you know what? We do support some things that are good. That's a great counterexample, actually. Um, I want to pose another question to you guys, which hey, is- you, you hold know, on for a second, because I, I would yeah. add CRT to that. I mean- uh, whenever somebody wants to talk about race or the history of racism in America, it gets labeled as some, you know, arch nemesis viewpoints, uh, critical race theory. And it's not. We need to teach. I mean, that's, that's, there are all kinds of examples like that. There's a responsibility, yeah. as, as Ellis was describing, wokeness. It, it, it's my job, as sort of being on the delivering end of commentary of that type, uh, to differentiate between people who simply are more liberal than I am. I might have a different view about gay marriage, might have a different view about any one of a number of things. And the people, I, I reserve the W word for those who really are force feeding something that seems extreme, something that seems uh, uh, that re refers deleteriously to anybody who dares to differ, uh, you know, critical race theory, the degree to which uh, it seeks to have kids hate the country and hate each other, uh, is to be differentiated from simply an honest accounting of the story of, of the very uh, troubled story of race in America. Of course, there, and here's the thing, there's nobody in America that, that doesn't want kids taught about race, that doesn't want kids uh, taught about slavery. There are a lot of people in America who don't want the country portrayed as a racist hellhole today. Yeah, actually, Mark, the, 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 I recently saw polling that totally backs them up. Some, you know, 90%, 87% of Americans want their kids to be taught about slavery and the, you know, the past, which includes obviously the vast majority of Republicans. All right. One last question. My question is, what is new about this? Our politicians have been lying to us forever. I'm just some recent examples that come to mind. Um, NAFTA is not going to destroy working class communities. Saddam Hussein has weapons of mass destruction. Trickle down economics is not going to immiserate the <laughs> poor, right? Like we, this is, this is really a kind of a feature of politics, not a bug. So what made it new and noteworthy? What was new this year that made it, that made the word gaslighting our word of the year? Let's start with you, Mark, and then Alice, you'll close us out on this topic. This this will be a quick one, a rarity from me. I don't think anything changed about the practice of politicians and how they talk. I think 30, 50 years ago, politicians would spin things in their direction and we would all kind of mull and stroke our chins and go, oh, that guy's full of it, or I agree with that, or I disagree with that. Now, a politician on either side says something that is divisive, and by the way, everything is divisive, uh, and the people on the other side instantly uh, get out on the streets with flaming pitchforks calling for that person's head. That's where you get cancel culture. That's where you get the online derision. So I don't think anything has changed in the politician's behavior. I think what's changed is the behavior and the, uh, the, the fuse of the public. Mm-hmm.
Yeah, that's a great list of lies, by the way. I, I, you could keep you could keep going probably for about the next fourteen <laughs> hours and, and, and never run out. Uh, I, I mean, it's true that we've always been lied to, but this here's the thing that I think has changed is that we've changed, and, and the way the way that our electorate is divided up, this uh, you know extreme gerrymandering of today means that, for instance, most of the people in Congress have no risk of anything other than being too moderate. Right. So if you if you slice up the districts in a certain way, you can make sure that no one ever has to appeal to anybody who's different from themselves. And that that allows that kind of extreme gaslighting, that kind of claims that are not supported by facts without any cost paid by the politicians who try to do it. All right. So we got a word ish, at least a candidate from Alice bubble busting. I kind of like bubble popping. It doesn't seem quite as violent as bubble. <laughs> busting. Don't you know alliteration? So, um, maybe, you know, bubble, bubble challenging, something like that. I kind of like that direction where, you know, we have this obligation to take other people seriously. And frankly, I, I think there's a missed opportunity. Politicians who uh, they're clearly playing the game of divide and, you know, raise up your level of emotion. But what if you, you know, said, you know, I see where my opponent's coming from, be the reasonable person. And maybe you pull some moderates in your direction. I don't know if it'll work. I probably, I'm probably unelectable. So don't take my advice. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we've been being very tolerant and genial and nice about understanding other people's point of view. Meanwhile, uh, former president Trump is meeting with some interesting characters at Mar-a-Lago. And we'll talk about that and the implications for his presidential campaign in the Republican party here on the debate at Newsweek. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome back. This is The Debate, a podcast brought to you by Newsweek. I'm Bhatia Unger-Sargon. I'm here with Andrew Tallman. And our guests are the wonderful duo, Mark Davis and Ellis Hennigan. Our next topic is about a very accursed dinner that former President Trump had with three actual deplorables. We had um, Holocaust denier, white nationalist and racist Nick Fuentes. We had um, the rapper and newly announced presidential candidate and anti-Semite uh, Kanye West, who now goes by Yi, And then we had Milo Yiannopoulos, an alt-right troll and sometime pedophile defender. Um, so that Trump scheduled the meeting with Yi before his anti-Semitic outbursts. It was then pushed off for a month. I guess he thought it would be over by then. Um, and he's, Kanye brought these other deplorables with him and they all ended up having dinner with Trump. So many Republicans have actually denounced the meeting. Some have named Trump while doing so. Others have shied away from doing so. So my first question goes to you, Mark. This is something I'm really struggling with. So um, for years, Trump's detractors on the left and in the mainstream media accused him of all manner of support for white nationalists, anti-Semites and racists. And his defenders would say, look, these are lies. These are exaggerations. You're leaving out context. I think often fairly, they would smear him unfairly. But now you look at this meeting and it sort of doesn't this vindicate the leftist criticism of Trump? I mean, wasn't this dinner with Nick Fuentes? They would argue this was the logical endpoint. This was the only place that this man's political career could end up. What say you? 
And that's probably why he, Trump himself, has loved the last four or five days of this. <laughs> this is to an extent what he does, which makes him a crazy making figure. Uh, it's what, uh, it, 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 let's do a flow chart. Is there the slightest actual demonstrative reason to believe that Trump is a, a racist and anti-Semite? That's a simple no. Does he have a weird propensity for hanging out with virtually anybody, maybe to troll people or see what the reaction is like, almost a juvenile, let's see what kind of shock value I can have? That's that's a guess. And I think that uh, the degree to which the people have taken the bait, I mean, I, I think that with Kanye, you've got a certain amount of big time star appeal for some reason. Uh, with Nick Fuentes, he says he didn't know who Nick Fuentes was. I think I'm prepared to believe that because Trump knows what he knows and doesn't know what he doesn't know. As far as Milo, I don't know. And you, for you to call them actual deplorables was skillful. So the question, I'll wrap up here and hand it to Alice or anybody else, is, is this de facto evidence that Trump is gathering the like-minded in order to trade valuable talking points uh, about the, the 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 about white supremacy or anti-Semitism, I think that is a fiction born only in the minds of those who don't like him. Alice, well, I, I mean, it is kind of part of the Trump coalition, isn't it? I mean, there's an audience for this this hatred out there. I mean, a lot of people rally around it. Thank goodness it's not a, it's not close to a majority, but but I mean, it's. It's part of the line. Listen, I, I'm going to be charitable. I, I'm, in, I'm inclined to accept Trump's explanation that he was punked, basically, but by, by Kanye, right? Uh, he thought he was meeting Kanye. Kanye brings a couple of guys along. They don't check him out uh, as carefully as they should have. Before you know it, there's a, there, there's a firestorm. Let's assume that's true. Well, and let me just but, interrupt you for a second, Ellis. That actually all members of this coalition have, have acknowledged that. So Nick Fuentes, Milo Yiannopoulos, and Kanye have all said mm -hmm. exactly that. So they've corroborated Trump's version. Well, that, go that, on, that, go that, on. Yeah. That, that's right. And it worked, that explanation works for all four of them. So, so, so yeah, but so, so let, let's assume it's true. But, but what do you do if you find that you've been punked like that? Mm -hmm. You know, you come out later and you say, hey, listen, you know, I'm sorry. It's terrible that I that I sat down with those cretins, um, but I didn't realize they were. And I apologize. And it won't happen again. But um, that's but her he, logic. He, that, he that, can't that, do that. You're, you're he right, can't you're do right. that. Well, no, he could. He doesn't want to. He doesn't. It. He won't. That, that, yeah, that's earth logic. And, and it's the kind of normal behavior that people with a certain decorum have, which he just doesn't have. And people can either find that as part of his charm or part of the reason just can't stand him. The thing about uh, 30 seconds on, on the, the beginning of one of Ellis's points is isn't that sort of aren't these actual deplorables sort of kind of part of the Trump base? Every politician's base is going to contain some people who support that politician, whom the politician has absolutely no interest in. I'm guessing if I gathered a room full of communists and anarchists, actual communists and anarchists, they probably voted for Obama. Is that Obama's fault? No. So I would simply offer that. But they probably didn't vote for Biden. So, I mean, that is kind of telling. <laughs> Sorry, Andrew, jump in there. There's a reason I didn't use yeah. that. Okay, yeah. I'm, I'm probably going to get lit up over saying this, but I'm, I'm going to tell you, this dinner makes me feel very conflicted because on the one hand, as we've been talking about this whole episode, we got to be willing to take people seriously and hear their point of view. And look, um, Holocaust deniers are a unique breed of crazy, right? And anti-Semites. But at the same time, 
I'm willing generally to talk to anybody. And if I find myself at dinner with somebody like this, my first response is a weird fascination. I want to find out what drives them. Is there any way I can bridge them over to reality? You know, that's kind of my impulse. And I think of the sort of people that Trump has said he would sit down and meet with any world leader, terrorist leader, you know, who that's kind of the job of the president. And are we really saying that it'd be okay for Trump to meet with uh, Vladimir Putin or Kim Jong-un, but not okay for him to meet with Nick Fuentes or, um, Yes. Or Milo Yiannopoulos. And I guess that, 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 that's actually yes. exactly what you're saying. But, but, <laughs> yes. That's a yes. Because those are right, actual, those are actual world <laughs> leaders. And I know what you mean. And, and that says good things about you because I'm the same way. I'm guessing Ellis is the same way. Dialogue with people who are just in another universe can be really interesting. And us as citizens and, and people in the media and people in, in the commentary class, yeah, that, that's one thing. But when you are when you are Trump and you, by the way, just offered yourself up for president again, it, it's just not a good look. And I say this as a frequent Trump defender. This is it's not a good look to willfully enjoy the casual company of people who are this virulent. You know, here's what here, here's what I would say to that. I, I think it makes good journalism, but bad presidency. Listen, I spent my career. You're right. Oh, look at that. People, I, I'll take talky, it. Right. I mean, we, we all talk to abhorrent people. I mean, some of the best interviews I've ever done are with people I wouldn't invite home to dinner. I mean, that's that's what we do. But 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 here's the difference. When a president sits down with a monster, it empowers the monster in a way that when Mark or Alice or you guys do, it, it doesn't have the, the same effects. So, so I'm not saying don't do it. I mean, I, I think it's fine to sit down with the Ayatollah in Iran or whoever might happen to be, but but you've got to lay down a little bit of a predicate before you do it. Otherwise, you empower them. you got to say, here's my goal here. Here's what I'm trying to get out of this. Here's what I'm representing. And let me make clear, I don't embrace any of the garbage this person agrees with. I don't think we got any of that from Mar-a-Lago. I don't know if I can get an amen in the room for this, but I'd also like to draw a distinction between people like Kanye, yay, uh, Nick Fuentes, Milo, and the real historical hate mongers of our time, the the Bull Connors, the Father Coughlins, the real anti-Semites who had thought about it, lived it, breathed it, were fluent in it. From Kanye to Nick Fuentes, I consider these folks to be cartoon characters who are performance artists who may or quite frankly may not really have this kind of hatred in their DNA. They might be trolling us. Now, that doesn't make me dismissive of them because things that that you say that are anti-Semitic, that are bigoted, remain bad. But uh, I, I, I would just make that point to differentiate yeah, I'm not gonna- shallow level because I think that's really all we have left is this shallow level of proud boy nonsense of people that don't really matter as opposed to the people, you know, in, in, in the era of the Kristallnacht whose hatred of Jews had had a death toll. Oh, I don't know, Mark. I don't want to make these guys out to be uh, monsters light. I mean, this is this is what today is. I mean, none of those people you mentioned had the Twitter followers that Kanye has. But they would. Um, uh, maybe they could have. Yeah. I mean, you know, did George <laughs> Wallace really believe? I don't know. I mean, I think... I'll judge my monsters as they come. But I I think you bring up a really interesting point, which is um, in a way, Trump has always been, you know, 
an influencer, right? You know, like a social media influencer, as much as he was a politician, he was a celebrity first. And in a way that puts him on a continuum between someone like Putin or someone like Erdogan, right? And someone like Kanye West, right? Because he's sort of part celebrity and part politician. And if we think about, you know, I mean, to me, the reason you would meet with a politician, even if they're a deplorable, even if they really are, a, you know, a war criminal is because, you know, when somebody's elected to office, they become a representation of the body politic, right? And in a way, I think what was so interesting about Trump, and I'm curious if you guys agree with me, is that he sort of refused that burden, right? He refused to let go of, um, you know, being an influencer, being a celeb, being somebody who's on Twitter, now that he had been conferred with that sort of status of representative of the body politic. And so in blurring that line between celebrity and politician, I, I think he he does, in a way, elevate these characters, no? Oh, no doubt. And, and in fact, the most annoying thing about that entire infernal dinner was not, you know, what it says about Trump. I don't think it says anything. Uh, we didn't learn anything more about, about Nick Fuentes or Kanye and his anti-Semitic chapter of his life. It was the waves of unfortunate attention poured onto these performance artists to the detriment, I think, of yeah. society. Yeah, Mark, you know, it did one other thing, too. It put mainstream Republican politicians in a really uncomfortable position, right? Because, you know, they don't want to denounce Trump because they don't know whether he's really a, a wounded animal who's not going to survive. They don't want to back him because, you know, that might come back to haunt him. And so we saw five days of deep discomfort. Chris Christie came out quick. And then that was pretty much it for a bunch of days. And even now, all these days later, you're still getting a lot of these kind of lukewarm criticisms without naming anybody and trying to be kind of polite about the whole thing. From the sidelines, that was kind of fun to watch. No, it was. It was it was a unique moment where you had Republican leaders feel the need to take a position, even if they took it tepidly or a little bit carefully, but they they all seem to be wanting to take a position of some kind on this. We're going to switch gears when we come back. We're going to talk about an announcement that we just got that Saudi Arabian leader Mohammed bin Salman might not face charges, might be granted a kind of immunity for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. What's going on at the Biden administration? We'll talk about it when we return on the debate. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. 
Welcome back to the debate at Newsweek. Joe Biden, President Biden, is now recommending we give immunity to Mohammed bin Salman for any legal culpability over the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. People are not happy about this. They're pretty angry because it feels like that's the end of responsibility for this. And all because what? He's the prime minister now, whereas before he was not. So he's been elevated to a kind of diplomatic immunity status. We have this longstanding practice of you know, not being able to bring these sorts of charges against heads or semi heads of state. Uh, misstep, uh, brilliant. What other implications might there be for this? Let's uh, start with you, Ellis. No, I don't like it. We were looking for a place where I could attack Biden. This may be it. I don't like it. Uh, you know, listen, one of the things we learned is that uh, the Saudis have a way, no matter who's in power, or finding a way to to either through bribery, ingratiation, threat, uh, uh, support of terrorism, find a way to to protect themselves. So listen, I'm, I'm talking to you five blocks from from what we used to call ground zero in New York and. I remember uh, where those hijackers uh, it came from, and uh, I haven't forgotten that. And then my colleague Kashoji is, uh, is is brutally murdered. No, I'm sorry, no sympathy for me anywhere in any of this stuff. All right, this Mark? is where it gets really interesting because at the point at which Ellis says he finds one thing to criticize, I mean, not one, but something to criticize a president that he generally supports. I want to see if this sounds like me maybe finding an asterisk of explanation. For a president whom I, who I don't, I don't hate anybody. Uh, for the worst president of my lifetime. So here's the question I would have, Ellis: What would accountability look like? What would you like Biden to do? Because we all share the same values. We like accountability. We like people to pay for the terrible things they do. He's a murderer, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But let's play this out. What really does it look like? Would it look like? What would be the sort of geopolitical ramifications, or what would it look like? What are the optics? So. Biden were to be as tough as maybe you or I would have wanted him to be. Let's play that out. So, so here's how I answer that. You do what you can, even if it's useless, right? Even if it's uh, what you, you, you get an indictment and that, that you can never collect a guy on, he never comes. You do what you can, even if it's completely uh, has zero practical effect. Because what you can't do is send out a message that uh, somehow we're turning our eyes away, we're winking at it, or we don't really think it's so bad. It's really, really bad. That's so a good here's answer. my question. Uh, yeah, just to, to reply to, to what yeah. I asked. As the pure symbolism of it, exactly. if nothing else, the symbols matter. Exactly. Right? Because the, the, the thing I was predicating that on was that if a president, if a world, and it was presidents, I support presidents, I don't. If there's something on the world stage that looks like a no brainer, as this does, and they're just not doing it, maybe there's a reason I'm not thinking of. Maybe there are bigger fish to fry than just what is really just a horrible murder case. Uh, and and I, I, maybe it's me giving benefit of the doubt that maybe there's something in this that I don't know, that I'm not privy to, that I don't understand. Uh, and then maybe if we did do something, it would. it's like, be careful what you wish for. But Ellis's answer, and, and I think where we're all going to be on this in a minute, is you at least, even if it's window dressing, even if it's political theater, you at least say and start the wheels, even if it's in a futile fashion, you give off the appearance of the right kind of revulsion to something, even if a world leader does it. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, so now I find myself being like the lone voice here who thinks that this was pretty great. And actually, I think it was Trumpy. Like, I think uh, this was the first time that President Biden showed up and did foreign policy the way Trump did, which was by asking not how can we police the world, but 
How can we help American workers? I mean, this to me seems clearly about OPEC, OPEC plus gas, oil, the price of gas in America domestically. He's trying to curry favor with somebody who he's hoping is going to help the American worker get to work and get home and drive their kids to church and drive their kids everywhere and get to the supermarket. And like that seems to me to be the, the calculus that's being made here in the context that we've seen, which is, you know, using foreign policy not as a tool for waving our morality around, but as a tool for helping the American worker the way Trump did with China, let's say, right? What what should be the focus of our foreign policy? Should it be us as policemen or us as thinking about what is America first, as he put it? Why am I wrong, guys? No, I mean, it's a good argument. It's a good argument. It's almost Kissingerian, if I can uh, use that that, that term. I mean, it's not irrational. Here's what I want to answer to that. There Mm -hmm. is a moral content here. It isn't only real politic, right? Diplomacy is complicated. We got to do a whole bunch of things at once. We got to look out for our interests, but we also need to do what's right. And often, often we need to balance conflicting priorities. I'll, I'll give you a quick parallel example. You, you, you take a case of Americans wrongly imprisoned abroad, Brittany Griner and, and Paul mm-hmm. Whelan, and there's, there's, there's dozens of other examples. In every one of those cases, getting them home, which we all want to do, is complicated by the fact that we have larger national interests that we don't want to have that release conflict with. So, so if we make Putin look good by allowing him to release Brittany under certain circumstances, does that help him in the war in Ukraine? Well, we don't really want to do that, but that's what grown-up diplomats do is figure their way through that thicket. That is exactly what I was talking about uh, 60, 90 seconds ago. And Batya, you identified exactly the kinds of things that might be the bigger picture of uh, 30,000 foot level things that might be a reason that might explain why you don't come in with all the guns blazing at, at that Saudi leader. And, and Ellis is exactly right in saying that no matter what you do, we tend to look at things this narrowly. A foreign leader did something terrible, responsible for the death of, of an innocent man. We need to take action strongly against that leader. There's a certain equilibrium to that, a certain symmetry to that. But if you only look at it along that uh, that spectrum, there's so many other things that could then result. And the Trumpian comparison is, is really interesting because everybody gave Trump all kinds of you-know-what for going over and meeting with Kim Jong-un. And isn't he kind of coddling a dictator? Yeah, probably. But there was a feeling like maybe there was a way in which Kim Jong-un was less likely to nuke Japan pan during trump so i don't know there's always big picture stuff no and i love leaving it on that note precisely because i think there's other things you might say about whether that's smart policy effective policy the only policy or something like this but what i love you doing there batya is raising a little bit of a question over something that or a serious question over something that we all at first impulse think is completely wrong and that's kind of been the theme of the show today, right, is being willing to see just have a little bit of self-doubt, like, oh, maybe not just this thing, but maybe there are other things I haven't considered in this arena that I ought to take a little bit more seriously. All right. We got one last one. It should be very easy. Super simple. You guys ready? Ready. The uh, swastika has. <laughs> wow. Look at the time. Look at the time. God, where are we clearly we get back to that. Roll the credits, roll the credits. No, kidding. This is a good one. This is a good one. Go ahead. So California recently amped up their, what I guess is an anti-hate symbols law 
that now prohibits you from using a swastika and or a uh, noose and or a burning cross as a form of intimidation or terrorism. There's three levels if you do it repeatedly and so forth. There's a progression here. I'm stunned that a country in the United States seems to have a law like this. It's so easily on the books in the presence of what I thought the First Amendment protected horrible though it might be. So that's one thing. And on the other hand, you have Asians of Asian faiths variously saying, whoa, 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 whoa. Yes, the Nazis totally co-opted and ruined this symbol, but we for thousands of years have used the swastika for a symbol of peace, prosperity, luck. It's something that is still in a lot of our iconography. And for you to tell us that in our context, that's hateful, Wow. Um, okay. <laughs> we, we we challenge that. So is there room in post-World War II America 80 years on for swastikas in some context or no? Should we just go the way of Europe and California and wipe this all out? Ellis? Uh, um, as a cultural matter, it may be time to move on, folks. Uh, There's got to be some other. Can't we use a dove or, 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 or something? Listen, I would concede that sometimes these rules get a little ham-handed. You try to put it into law. It's hard to define. You know, maybe we're better off just saying, hey, you can't intimidate people. You can't threaten people. That's illegal. And we'll don't need to list every single symbol that you might use in order to do that. There are two things that are true at the same time. Ready? Number one, laws like this are stupid. They're overly broad, they're unenforceable, and they're also pretty needless. Number of people actually walking around trafficking in nooses and swastikas are, are quite rare. And, 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 and we're always properly offended. We always go, good God, that's a noose, or holy cow, that's a swastika. So, so I, I think the laws are stupid. The second thing, I had zero awareness of whatever corner of Asian culture might use something that happens to actually be the swastika as an article of their faith. I afford them complete latitude to do so, but they can't have any expectation other than any extraneous display of that will be instantly fused to our brains as the Third Reich, because that's all we know. So they got a tricky symbol they can either decide to do with what they wish, but let that be their decision. And as Ellis and, and, and Andrew, you said, let, let's let's find real hate when we find it, because every once in a while we will find it and leave some of this window dressing alone. I mean, how much is this a question of intent? Because it seems to me that um, like it's clear that there's no intent to offend here, right? Because this is part of their religion, right? And it's yeah. clear that, right, this First Amendment question, right, about protecting freedom of speech is also about protecting freedom of religion and freedom of expression, right? So um, how much does intent matter in this question, Ellis? Well, listen, they're lovely people, it sounds like. I know no no disrespect to you, but but how about this? Let me let, let me make this offer. Let's try for a logo makeover and I'll pay the fee at Fiverr. There's all kind of people who will help you come up with a new design. And that's just the reality of today. It's really bad branding. How about that? Or there's, or there's something simpler. Do away with all this silly policing of symbols. And if person A walks by with a swastika and has a copy of Mein Kampf, we know that's a bad person. Bad person. If person, if person B walks by with a swastika and explains that it's the part of religious mindset, we give that a pass. And then we all get on with our lives. <laughs> so so we're we're looking for a rebrand on the one hand or a additional markers test from uh, the other side context give me more information 
All right. Well, um, I, I do all, you know, it's, it's funny. I think, I think I managed to find a place of disagreement among what has otherwise been a pretty widespread agreement today. Uh, I do always like to end with something that genuinely is uh, silly, frivolous, and fun, therefore completely unsafe to talk about over the dinner table with people. Question for you, Alice, very quickly. The cost of natural Christmas trees has gone through the roof this year, but we always have the artificial tree. Your take, which one should a person have, artificial or natural Christmas tree? Uh, real or none at all. Even even in somewhere like New York where I am, where the ones on the street corner totally suck. It's, it's, it's one of the good arguments for going <laughs> to Costco or Walmart out in the suburbs and getting a proper tree. Otherwise, forget it. Mark, I can't tell you how opportune this is that you would ask me this. And this may seem like triangulation of the highest order, but here's the very brief answer. When I was a kid, we didn't just have a real tree. We had a live tree with a root bag. We'd go get it and my dad would bring it in. We'd put it in a big bucket. And after Christmas, we'd plant the thing in our yard. And this was in Maryland. And so we had this like Christmas tree field in our yard of Christmas trees past. And then he decided he got tired of that. Then we went to the cut tree, the real tree you smelled it you picked up the needles you did all of that and that's what i thought i would do for the rest of my life about 10 years ago we had a real tree and my my magnificent wife lisa had a big time allergic reaction to it and i said listen i i love the real tree she loves the real tree we went to the artificial tree at that time 10 years ago they make amazing ones now they're pre-lit no needles i am a real tree uh, acolyte and yet we made the switch mm. and we paid probably $500 for this stupid thing. But you know what? The real ones cost 200 now. You, you spend that in a couple of Christmases. So we have, I, I've, walked, I've walked in every single path and I, all other things being equal, I, I would lean toward the real tree. But uh, the, 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 the artificial tree is not blasphemy. All right, so uh, l- let me give you two thoughts here. Number one, number, n- n- number one is uh, about 20, 25, something like that years ago, uh, we bought a- an artificial tree and I've never looked back. <laughs> so I'm perfectly <laughs> satisfied. And every year I have to go all the way to my garage to get my Christmas tree. It's fantastic. Right. It's Se- awesome. Second thing, if you do get a natural tree when all is said and done and you're capable Take it to your local zoo. They'll feed it to the animals. The animals love to play with and or, you know, feast on whatever. They love the Christmas tree. Who eats a Christmas tree? I don't know, but they love it. The the, the zoos always tell me that they want the Christmas trees. There you go. Wouldn't that be Uh, caught in the esophagus of virtually every animal you could name? I'm not trying to tell them what they should eat. Why am I Googling now? God, I learn something from this show every time. Uh, you All guys right. disappoint me. You disappoint me. That's so <laughs> sad. You know what, for. You know what kind of animals strive for? It. Well, that's all the time we've got for today. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Mark uh, Davis and uh, Ellis Hennigan. You can follow them on Twitter again at Mark Davis or at Hennigan. Either one of them on Twitter. They're as entertaining uh, on the screen as they are here on the audio. Uh, my great thanks to my co-host, Bakyungar Sargon. I'm Andrew Tallman for the debate at Newsweek.